From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hi, this is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Today, we talk electric vehicles. They come in a lot of forms, from the car you drive, to the bus you ride on, to the electric scooter or bike you take to work, to the electric truck your packages or food are delivered on. So today, we're going to talk about BNEF's annual electric vehicle outlook and dive into more detail on charging networks. After all, if you have an EV, you're going to need to be able to charge it. I get to speak with Ryan Fisher, one of the analysts who helped write the report and our lead analyst on electric vehicle charging infrastructure at BNEF. We talk about the companies installing chargers, the grid, EV rollout, policy recommendations, semiconductor shortages, COVID-19, and Ukraine. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we have a full disclaimer at the end of the show. But now let's speak with Ryan about electric vehicles and charging networks and what this could all look like in the future. Ryan, thanks for coming on Switched On today. Hi, Dana. Well, thanks for having me. This is our first time having you on the show, and we're going to drill down into some parts of this electric vehicle outlook that we do every year on areas that you know more specifically than maybe other parts of the report or other parts of the team, which is around the charging networks. But before we get into that, let's zoom way out and let's talk about the electric vehicle outlook and really what are we trying to accomplish with it and who are we speaking to when we write this report every year? So it's kind of got this name, the electric vehicle outlook, but it could quite easily be called the transport outlook. It includes everything from how far are people traveling? What modes of transport are they using? And more and more so, we kind of go into the impacts. One of the key things we're also doing now is looking at net zero. So saying, well, what kind of happens in an economic scenario, but what happens if we really want to meet those goals to lower emissions by 2050? And we're talking to a huge group of people. So as I just said, with policymakers, and you've got all sorts of businesses affected by this. So electricity demand comes into it, charging infrastructure, kind of the core things that I'm looking at, but also other groups looking at things like metals and mining, battery demand, purely the vehicles themselves, clearly the automakers interested in those. So it touches on just about everybody who could possibly be interested in road transport. And there are a lot of different directions to go in here, but what would you say is kind of the state of the market today? Because I will say, just anecdotally speaking, we went from in London, the electric scooter space being illegal and finable just a couple of years ago, and now I see them absolutely everywhere. But let's focus in on, you know, I guess probably the biggest part of the market that we tend to focus on, which is the automotive space. What is the state of that right now? So it's been a real successful time for electric vehicles, and we're starting to see kind of those EV share of sales, 15%, I think, in kind of places like Germany, China, even higher in some of these markets as well. Obviously, Norway is kind of the poster child for EVs. So EVs as a whole have been really quite successful, driven by kind of emissions regulations and new products coming out. 
all the time that consumers want. You did obviously just touch on kind of bite and there is some niggling things happening in the background. So you can't get on some of the trains now if you've got uh, kind of those e-bikes because they don't want them to set on fire. I mean, not things that we kind of fully focus on in the report, but yeah, there's still things in the background going on in this sector. So let's go into the topic that we want to focus on for today's episode, because, you know, as we've addressed, we could spend time on buses and trucks and all of these different parts that are included in this report. But let's talk about the charging networks that actually are facilitating electric vehicles, so consumer vehicles, or maybe even fleets for taxis and for companies, but the the smaller vehicles that you see out there. And this charging situation that is involved with range anxiety and why people sometimes don't buy them and really facilitates the entire rollout because you have to be able to, you know, for lack of a better word, fuel them if you're going to use them. Where does that currently sit today? I guess let's look back before we look forward. How far have we come in charging and is it ubiquitous or do we have a long way to go? There's pretty regular articles kind of highlighting, I've got a car, I'm in the wild and this really is is kind of still a problem, whether that's because they're not available in all locations or just because they don't work. So there's still some way to go, but there's certainly big signs of change. And there's a lot of investment in this market. Like we've gone from somewhere a few years ago where companies were like, REVs kind of going to be real. Do people want to charge out and about what infrastructure do they really want to a market where people are convinced that that's happening and that they're actually trying to put their money in. So drivers can access a range of infrastructure. The market largely, if we think about Europe and the US, is dominated by home charging. So we've kind of got a lot of people who are quite affluent buying quite expensive EVs, and they've got a detached house and they can install a home charger. So they don't necessarily need to charge elsewhere so much. But then you're starting to get more and more people, whether that be, like you said, the taxi drivers who are kind of being pushed, whether that are by Uber or Lyft to, to go electric in cities. And building up bigger numbers, all those who just simply don't have an ability to have a home charger. So they now need a solution that isn't the home charging. We're seeing quite a lot of investment, whether that be from the pure play operators or kind of oil and gas utilities as well coming in there and even retail. So to be honest, there's a lot of investment. There's a lot of companies uh, coming into this space. One of the things that comes up is like, what charges do people really want? Do they want the slow ones that kind of charge overnight in a similar way to what you might do at home or maybe when you get to work and you, you kind of leave your car there all day? Or do they want something that kind of is more similar to a petrol station? And this debate is still kind of going on, but some of the numbers that we've seen is kind of last year, about 70% of all the investment in the public network globally went into those faster chargers. So investors are, are kind of more favorable towards those and they're not just being rolled out on highways so there was this original thing of like oh you only need the fast ones if you're going 200 300 miles whereas now there seems to be a bit of an understanding that actually we can put these in urban locations retailers supermarkets mcdonald's are putting them in kind of walmart all, all these different companies so we're seeing a different landscape occur with kind of what is being accepted it doesn't mean to say that there won't be slow charging we do see that in our forecast but what we're certainly seeing as you kind of weigh up the numbers and kind of play out the scenarios is just the sheer number of fast chargers that you'd need makes it really difficult you kind of need 16 times more the slow chargers than you would the fast and then that gets into this like how do you get the planning commission how do you get the grid upgrades how do you persuade the kind of, whether that's municipalities or councils or, or sub-councils in cities to actually put these charges in? So we're a bit more favorable on fast charging. 
So you referenced that we would need more of them. That's presumably because in the slow chargers, somebody would park their car and leave them there for some time. So that's in regard to physical space and charging of the vehicles. But what does this do to the grid and what does it have to do with the demand on the grid? Because one of the benefits of the slow charger, potentially, you're even setting some sort of a you know, if you're charging from home, deliberately charging overnight when demand for electricity is much lower on other parts of the grid, these fast chargers, it's immediately happening. What sort of strain does that put on the system? This topic comes up and everybody's really interested in this at the moment. So we did a really nice report last year with a kind of a startup company called EV Energy in the UK. So what they do is kind of plan out when they would like people to charge when they plug in at home and, and kind of move that time overnight. And when you see that, most people will get home at five and there's this assumption that, well, everybody plugs in straight away, that blows the grid and we've got a big problem. But you're only actually really on average charged two or three hours every night and you plugged in for 12. So they proved, and we've shown that in the data, that it's quite easy to move that, that time from five in the evening to, to sort of early morning. So from a home charging perspective, these tools can make a difference and policymakers are certainly picking up on that and then starting to mandate things like smart charging in different ways. When you get out into a kind of fast charging, we can be talking megawatt kind of installations now. So multiple hundred kilowatt chargers next to each other, getting up to 350 or even megawatt for the commercial vehicles now being discussed and kind of implemented. So that does become a problem for the grid connection. Some of the difference with that is you're planning it in. If I install a home charger, the grid might not really know about it. Whereas when I'm saying I want a megawatt connection, you are saying to the grid that I'm going to do that and they, they need to approve it. So the problem more becomes how much do they want to charge you to do that and what things can you do to kind of reduce the cost. So we're hearing more and more uh, about installations, installing battery storage. The economics of that differ though. So some places like in the US, they have these demand charges which is basically charging you more for electricity at peak times. So it can be more favorable to install battery storage for these kind of fast chargers than other places. But it, it might also be because of grid constraints. I literally don't have enough capacity on the connection to do so. So I think there's solutions, but certainly kind of the cost of doing this is a bit of a problem. And then just the resources available to do it. You hear that a lot of these public charging companies have got backlogs. And that can be to do with planning permission, but it can also be to do with getting the grid upgrades and getting them facilitated quick enough is a bit of a problem. You referenced that there's a number of different companies that are investing in these sorts of charging networks. So independent companies, utilities, and oil and gas firms immediately coming to mind or energy companies as they, they would maybe in this circumstance be called. But what about the grid operators? Are the grid operators actively involved in beyond the permitting process? Are they involved in rolling out the charging network and actually getting some of the money from it? It kind of strikes me just on a high level. It's like we've had years of oil and gas and they've really lobbied quite successfully to keep that industry going. And then you think about EVs and the opportunity for utilities and grid operators and maybe for the past decade or so, they've been a bit lukewarm on this industry. But now I think we're seeing that change and they're realizing the opportunity. So one of the stats from this report is kind of like by 2050, EVs could be 20% of all demand for electricity globally. And obviously there's a lot of money in that, whether they're selling the electricity or providing the infrastructure to do so. So some of these companies are jumping on it, whether that be utilities like EMVW in Germany, installing chargers and owning the network, or whether it be some of the grid operators who are trying to facilitate this market. The US is really quite an interesting one. So in the US, you've got a series of utilities and they submit filings 
to kind of what we call rate-based infrastructure. So increase the cost everybody pays for electricity and use that increase in cost to make a fund to, to do things with. And in this case, they've submitted charging infrastructure filings. So some of those filings go quite broad and they'll own the network, whereas other ones are really just saying, we're going to upgrade the infrastructure that facilitates charging. So the infrastructure to your, to your depot for your buses. I think it becomes a little bit of a kind of political point. So is it anti-competitive to let those grid operators who are, are kind of allowed in the US to rate-based stuff to also own charging infrastructure because they can kind of undercut then other companies who are coming into the market? So one area, I think it's Austin Energy, they have this kind of like subscription. So you pay, I can't remember the exact number, but it's pretty low. It's like $5 a month or something like that. And you get unlimited access to their level two charges. And it then begs the question, like what money have they used to kind of do that? Is it undercutting uh, the current market? So yeah, th th there is certainly uh, grid operators getting involved and, and they also stand to gain from this by essentially installing the infrastructure to move the electrons to the chargers. So you referenced that oil and gas or energy companies are some of the companies that are actually investing in this space. Now, in particular right now, I think anybody listening who has a petrol vehicle has seen the gas prices out there. And I know that we are in a bit of an energy crunch and this has to do with a number of factors, including what's happening with Russia and Ukraine at the moment. But even before that, when gas prices were somewhat lower, the question is really around the margins on that. Are oil and gas companies making more money, kind of, I guess, mile for mile, if we want to put it in those terms, from an internal combustion engine as they are from electric vehicle charging? Because my experience with charging an EV is that while the prices do range widely, it's actually pretty cheap to charge up your vehicle. Yeah, and what we've seen uh, kind of high level is whilst uh, kind of people are saying, well, electricity prices and we're really focusing on them growing, gas prices are growing quicker in quite a lot of regions. So if you're charging at home, we're kind of seeing you can save on off-peak rates about $1,500 a year with your EV versus the cost you'd pay for kind of petrol or diesel. If you're charging in public, people go, well, the same thing you kind of just hired, like, oh, 50 pence or 70 pence per kilowatt hour, kind of depending where you are, that's really expensive. Well, is it as much as gas? But I think in a lot of cases that can still be kind of like 10 to 30% cheaper than what you're paying on fuel. And that's changing kind of every day at the moment as well. So there's still a case on like, yeah, they can, you, you as an EV driver are making money. From an oil and gas perspective, BP, I think it was announced in a press article that on kind of their highly utilized EV chargers, they're actually becoming more profitable than their fuel stations. Is this kind of age old question where nobody can make money on charging infrastructure is kind of the headline. And then now you're starting to see more and more companies come out and uh, kind of IPO and put more information in and say, well, actually um, on the high utilized ones that we've got, we're making quite a lot of money and the utilization is increasing and paybacks are coming down to kind of five years, these kind of things. So they're doing quite well. From an oil and gas perspective, I think one of the areas that we wrote about a little bit more was they're going to lose a lot of revenues, right? So at the moment, they deliver basically all of the fuel for everybody who's got a car, but they're slowly changing. As we talked about, a lot of people charge at home, they charge at depot, and they're a real threat there. So the utilities are going to more and more use, are going to take up that market, for example, although companies like Shell have, have got a, a utility base in the UK. So they're at threat anyway, whether or not they successfully managed to get some market share, certainly about 50% of their market is at threat of being lost just to private charging. And then in public, as we sort of highlighted earlier, you've got these other companies coming in to take a share of it. 
So I think the oil and gas majors, actually one of those in this market who are quite under threat. And at current, you see these strategies that they're kind of putting in, whether that be installing at four courts, the ultra fast chargers or buying other companies, the revenues they're going to lose from private charging won't necessarily be made up by either selling electricity through public charging or selling actually charging hardware or installing or some software services. Some of the analysis we've completed is like those revenues are not going to make up for the lost revenues that they've got. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. How are the auto companies facilitating the charging and really encouraging the networks to get out there? Because immediately what comes to mind, I think for many people, are the Tesla superchargers that were rolled out kind of alongside the vehicles being sold and this assurance that, don't worry, we'll be able to get you from point A to point B, from Southern to Northern California if you need to do it. But now there's a lot more options. So you reference that there's all of these different charging networks and that you don't need to, even as a Tesla owner, charge on a Tesla network. There's a lot of other networks to choose from and vice versa. How are the other vehicle manufacturers, as this space becomes increasingly crowded, how are they facilitating the charging space? Tesla is just such a pioneer. There's so many articles like Musk, Tesla, they just take up a lot of the headlines and you can't help but read it. But when I analyze the market, it's like, wow, they really did a good job. And a lot of the other automakers are kind of trying to replicate that through one way or another. So we've kind of got Ionity in Europe where you've got a lot of ultra fast chargers being put in across the highway networks. I wouldn't be surprised to see them install more in urban locations. Electrify America, which is this kind of subsidiary Volkswagen in the US as well. We've got a, a range of other people announcing or starting to install networks as well. So Rivian is, is talking about a proprietary network that they're, they're installing in large numbers. Stellantis is kind of announced it. So many of the companies are doing so. You've got slightly different takes on what they're doing. So like Rivian is installing kind of adventurous locations that fits their brand. You've got GM who's put this, I think it's something like a $750 million fund together they're kind of, instead of saying, all right, we'll own all the network, they're giving some money to EVgo in the US to put fast chargers in the locations they want, but it doesn't look like they're really looking at it as like a business opportunity, but they're not just looking at public charging. So you've got some of them who really quite laser focused on what they want to look at, but GM is, is also looking at kind of facilitating charging at dealerships and in the communities. So a, a few different layers there of how the automakers see this. What is their space within the market? Because one of the things that came up recently in the news was that their supercharger network is now available to a wider range of, well, I guess all of the electric vehicles out there that at least can actually tolerate supercharging. What does this mean, I guess, for Tesla owners, first of all, which that was one of the perks of owning one of those vehicles. And what does this mean, I guess, for the future of that company and the rest of the industry? 
Tesla is just such a pioneer. And when you look at their charging companies um, and you compare them, for example, with the other ones that have gone public, they're pretty much as big or bigger than all of them. So we've got some like Alego, I'm trying to think of the other ones, Fastnet, EVgo, ChargePoint. Those companies really are competing with Tesla in a way, even though Tesla hasn't spun out those divisions. They're probably making a lot of the hardware that they need, and therefore they can just compete on that pure basis as well as producing the vehicles. So I think that's really interesting. And from opening up the network point of view, I mean, they've got thousands of chargers. So just in the flick of a switch, I think they got something like 7,000 superchargers in Europe, and they turned on about 1,500 of those to everyone in Europe, I believe. So other drivers can use it. And as you say, it's like, well, what, what do you think if you're a Tesla driver? You're probably not too happy because this perk that you've got has been taken away. If you're another EV driver, I mean, one, it's a great advertisement for Tesla, and I wouldn't underestimate what they're really doing there. Like the automotive industry is full of money going into marketing and Tesla doesn't do that. And this is just another way they can get around that for me. But it doesn't mean quite yet that it's going to fully pan out. I mean, I was looking on somebody who'd taken their, I think it was a BMW to one of the chargers, superchargers in the UK. And the charge point isn't, the charge point port isn't in the right place. So they had to kind of like drive over three spaces, for example. So they weren't just blocking one and annoying a Tesla driver. They were actually blocking more than one. So there's still some hurdles there, but really cool from Tesla. So let's talk a little bit about the batteries themselves and how they handle the supercharging. Because one of the things that we know about electric vehicles and their batteries is that the batteries degrade over time and the supercharging of them may make them degrade a little bit faster. Has the battery technology changed? And is this an area of focus for the manufacturers of these batteries? And the batteries seem to be changing depending on a few things. So one of the popular topics at the moment is this like material prices for batteries are getting really high. REVs price parity, is it going to stay the same? And we kind of see a few things that automakers are doing. And one of them is changing the battery chemistry. So they're going away from the kind of high nickel, high cobalt content. And they're now putting more emphasis on their LFP. This is cheaper iron phosphate batteries. I think that's, that's the right expression for it. LFP. Those were originally thought to not perform so well, but there seems to have been a bit of an evolution and they're managing to hit the range requirements and safety requirements and everything in the same way that they maybe would have had done with the NMC batteries. So they're getting away by going with basically cheaper content uh, chemistries. The other thing is like these NMC batteries can take higher charge rates, for example. So there was a thought of, well, we'll go towards them. Everybody wants faster charging. But again, there seems to be an evolution or perhaps a progression with the LFP batteries that they seem to be performing nearly as well as the others. Charge rates is obviously kind of a center of attention. Everybody wants to be able to basically fuel their electric vehicle just as they fuel their petrol vehicle. And you get to this point kind of from a technical perspective where if you go above what basically the superchargers today do, which is kind of 150 to 250 kilowatts where they kind of max out. People discussing that you need a change in battery chemistry. You need to go from lithium ion technologies and you need to have solid state. But solid state, whilst there's some companies that are kind of talking about success, still seems to be five years, 10 years away. And I'm not sure whether it'll be one of those technologies that's always five or 10 years away until it's really proven. But what we're seeing in China, and I think China is a really interesting story we've talked about for a while, is the automakers there are announcing vehicles with 354 100 odd kilowatt maximum charge capacity. So maybe charging in five, 10 minutes, certainly quicker than those on the market today. And they're saying that they can do that with lithium ion technology. So they're managing to basically up the spec without actually changing the chemistry, which is interesting. Let's focus now instead of on the superchargers, on these home chargers that you say are starting to be 
a bigger part of market share than maybe some of the companies installing the chargers had anticipated. And this one area around smart charging. So we've already addressed this idea of people charging at different times of the day in order to optimize when they're in the grid. But how about the opposite direction? So, for example, in some countries, people have backup generators or power walls to supply them with electricity when the grid is unable to. And this is no longer an issue that's just relegated to parts of the developing world. We do have grid outages in all kinds of places due to things like fires or cold snaps and snowstorms and all kinds of things. So are vehicles ever going to be able to put energy back into the grid and supply us with this flexibility? Yeah, and this question is really cool. And sometimes you bring it up with people and they're like, no, it's never going to happen. It's kind of a pipe dream. And we've done a lot of research in the last year, and you're seeing more and more announcements that would suggest, you know what, that this is kind of going to happen. And if it happens at scale, uh, some really interesting things happen to the power system. So just from a point of saying, well, yeah, it really could happen. We've seen many automakers add what we call bi-directional charging, the ability to send energy the other way. So Ford with their F-150 have said, yeah, you can power your house for a number of days with our vehicle, Volkswagen saying every vehicle that they release, I think from 2022 onwards, that has a battery bigger than 70 or 80 kilowatt hours, will be able to do this. The Hyundai's and Kia's that are already out there do this. So just highlighting some major manufacturers are adding this capability. A lot of them at current are kind of confining that. So just to your home, but in future, they're certainly looking at how do you send the energy out all the way to the grid. There's kind of many hurdles being able to attach this. And some of that is cost and some of that is battery degradation. And then there's hurdles around like, can you make any money? Like, is anybody actually going to do this if I'm not going to get paid enough? But one of the studies we kind of looked at was a UK based one. And we did that within this electric vehicle outlook just to, to kind of get a finger on the market was to say, well, what happens if 50% of the vehicles do this and they can send energy back to the power system? And what you see is actually you can install more renewable energy generation, you could get rid of uh, fossil fuel generation quicker, and you can get rid of something like 10 to 20% of cumulative emissions and save in the order of magnitude of four to 8% of power system costs. So that can be simply buying the fuel that can be setting up the kind of renewable generation versus getting rid of the gas generation. We think if it gets big, it could be really good, but the complexity of actually aligning the money that's made and the savings that could be produced with a driver and making sure they connect to the grid is quite difficult. And we are seeing these grids you referenced, not just the grids people are charging on, but the grids that are manufacturing these vehicles. Those grids are getting cleaner as well, are they not? Yeah, so I think across the world, things are getting cleaner. One of the interesting points that we came across when looking at bi-directional charging was kind of how carbon costs work. So you can end up in a situation, and this applies to some work that I've seen on energy storage that we do, where you put in a large amount of energy storage, and that could be stationary storage, it can be the vehicles, and you can get the counter of what I originally said if you don't have high enough carbon costs. So that storage can essentially lead to gas generation or coal plants running at their kind of optimum capacity all the time. Essentially, you're doing them a favor, which means you're then raising emissions. So you don't always get in every market the same situation where if storage is increased, whether that be from stationary storage or through the vehicles, that that will 100% mean you get more renewable generation. So we've got some more research to do there, but we're just sort of digging in a little bit deeper on like carbon costs and how that affects markets, particularly like China, where they're, they're maybe not as stringent in how they do that as they might be in, say, the UK or New York. So from a policy standpoint, what is or isn't maybe in that case facilitating the adoption of electric vehicles? 
So policy has obviously been one of the big ones across this report, especially to get to net zero. If we kind of focus in on charging, I've started to see more and more companies now saying, well, actually, we don't need so much subsidies, particularly across Europe. It's maybe slightly different in the US. And we're also getting a lot of finance companies get interested in this. So we've got access to finance, not just from subsidies, we've got them elsewhere. So that in some ways leads you to the conclusion, well, actually policymakers maybe don't need to put so many subsidies in to get this market to go. But the question becomes like, how quick do you want the market to go though? And if you want it to move really quick, and we kind of obviously decided with the Paris Agreement and everything else that we would like to get to net zero quicker, then you, you can still put those subsidies in. And the scale of the subsidies needed are just far smaller than what we're putting elsewhere. So there was a chart that I added in this year that showed how much money was needed for a charging network in Germany, how much money were they putting for subsidies to kind of undercut the vehicle price that consumers would pay, and then how much money did they put into subsidies for fossil fuels, bouncing back from COVID-19 kind of into those industries. And the order of magnitude for the fossil fuels was somewhere like 200 billion for the vehicles. And it depends whether they keep the subsidy rate the same, but I think you get something like 6,000 euros for a bed at the moment in Germany. And they're talking about that lasting till around 2025, I believe. We're talking somewhere around 50 billion. And for the charging network, we're getting down to the kind of five to 10 billion range. So it's also a conversation about like, one, if you really want to do it, it's a small amount of the other subsidies. Let's move some stuff around and then we can really do this. And whilst from a business point of view, this might happen without subsidies, it will certainly happen quicker with them. So that's where I've kind of come to from the analysis and what some of that shows. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So more subsidies for vehicle adoption, but for the charging networks as well. Are those heavily subsidized or are those pretty much all free market? There is a lot of heavy subsidies. The U.S. is at 7.5 billion for these highway charges, we're looking at, they're saying projects can apply for up to 80% of the costs. In Germany, they put in 2 billion, I think for a thousand stations for fast chargers across. And they're doing some kind of more unique things in that they're saying, actually, this is the maximum price you can charge. So that really is changing the market because if you're an operator there and often they're charging more than the price cap that Germany's talked about. The market is really being manipulated by that. So there's quite a lot of government intervention in different ways. One of the areas that I think is maybe not talked about enough, but is really going to affect this market is grid upgrades and rate basing. So we briefly touched on like the US have these filings and they rate base some of those to put grid upgrades for charging infrastructure in. And that's great. And that is one of the more progressed markets in the world for doing that from what I can see. But that doesn't last forever. So you might be lucky your bus station A and you want to upgrade to I don't know, 50 buses, and you've fortunately got the local utility who's got 200 million to help you out. But once that 200 million runs out, what are you going to do? And this problem kind of exists everywhere. And I wouldn't want EV adoption 
or I don't think EV adoption should be slowed down because some people are looking and going, wow, the grid upgrade costs are just so expensive to do this. So we've seen some movement on that. In the UK, they're saying we will allow rate basing for charging infrastructure upgrades. So grid operators can put that into their rate base. It's a little bit gray where that kind of ends and where it starts, because quite clearly you could end up in a situation where like business A says, yeah, I'll have a megawatt connection and they don't really need it. So I think it's a difficult one, but I think it will certainly help the market if more money was allowed to be rate based for grid upgrades for charging. And explain exactly what rate basing is. So if you are paying at the moment 20p per kilowatt hour, uh, a certain portion of that is for taxes and a certain portion of it is for the electricity itself and the overheads of the kind of company running it. And they basically increase how much you're paying per kilowatt hour and they turn that into a fund to do the grid upgrades really. There we go. Electricity demand is certainly going up, not just for electric vehicles, but in other parts of our lives. As we look at things from how we interact with electricity for our phones and storage and even our homes. So I think that these grid upgrades do create an opportunity, but a potential pinch point for a number of industries at the moment. Switching tracks a little bit, let's talk about some things that, well, I think everybody is probably sick of talking about COVID-19, but to be honest, we are not beyond it. And there was a bit of a crunch on electric vehicle sales generally, in particular in the U.S., but also in some other areas that we saw over the course of the past couple of years as the pandemic was, you know, underway. Could you explain to everybody kind of what happened there, first of all, and then secondly, what that meant for electric vehicles? Did that Increase adoption, and are they back on track now? And are there enough vehicles being rolled out? Because certainly it drove prices up. And at one point, used vehicles cost more than you know we've ever seen in the market before. Yeah, and my, my father-in-law has just sold his his car because he could sell it for more than he bought it for. I think so. We're seeing that change like pretty quickly. I don't think that's going to last forever. Where you can sell a used car for more than you bought it for. The supply chain crunch from COVID led to things like the semiconductor shortage that are still kind of ongoing. On a weekly basis, we're kind of tracking that and we've done a few notes. And there seems to be some more optimism that lines are starting to get up to speed. But because vehicles couldn't be produced, that certainly has led to this point where kind of secondhand prices have gone up for ordinary vehicles. For EVs, it was a little bit difficult to sense, would COVID be worse or could it be worse for the market or better? What we've seen is actually that really has risen the share of EVs over time. It's kind of the perfect combination, I suppose, where you've got a lot of emissions regulations coming in. You started to see more and more models becoming available. And therefore, particularly in China and Europe, sales have really surged over the past kind of few years throughout that time. If you think about the shortages, though, we could have, I believe the market could have sold more if the semiconductor shortages weren't available in terms of EVs. So some of those startup manufacturers will have had it worse than some of the bigger ones. If you think about the, the small Chinese manufacturers like Neo and Xpeng, I don't think when you look at their numbers, they've sold as many vehicles as they would have done without the semiconductor shortage. And even if you look at like Rivian and you, you really look in a bit more detail at the articles, it's like building a new car company is just really difficult from a supply chain perspective. You've got to make sure everything is in the right place at the right time to kind of put it together. And the numbers that basically those companies really said they were going to sell, hasn't really materialized in a lot of places. And they're kind of behind. And a lot of that, I think, can come down to supply chain. And that's been kind of amplified by this continuous role across countries in the, in the world of like people going into lockdown. 
And obviously China was the last one is just coming out of that. And I know this is the billion dollar question, but do we have an idea of when the supply chain, in particular, the semiconductors are going to kind of even out and return to normal? We actually don't know. So we're tracking very similar. I mean, Andrew just that in our team. And the last couple of weeks, I think BMW and Mercedes have said their lines are back up and running, but they're cautiously kind of watching it. Whilst I can't remember the third supplier I was reading saying, we're actually still seeing this as a bit of a struggle. And this supply chain problem is going to exist, not just on kind of semiconductors, but batteries is a great one to really think about. So like BYD saying we're buying or rumored, I don't know whether it's confirmed yet, to be buying five mines for lithium. And I think we're going to see this across the world where some companies just have the right contracts and have set up and they can basically get the materials and the components they need at the right price, while others are kind of left swimming and struggling a little bit on the side. So the competitive advantage of being able to have those and be vertically integrated, I think, will play out in this market over time. And when you think about China, a lot of Chinese companies um, own a lot of the resources that are needed. So whilst the car industry previously was very focused around European, US manufacturers, Japanese manufacturers, the Chinese manufacturers are taking a bigger and bigger share of the Chinese market. And with some of these advantages I just talked about, have the ability to actually enter Europe and the US. So maybe we'll be buying Chinese electric cars in the next decade. I mean, these are truly global supply chains with metals from all over the world and then manufacturing of batteries in one place and then the vehicles in another place. It's all so interdependent. So it'll definitely be watch this space. Let's talk about something else that's also quite topical at the moment and what impact this will have on this industry, which is Russia and their invasion of the Ukraine. And this is another thing that I think is having a massive impact on natural gas, in particular here in Europe, where thinking about it all of the time, but I know it has a global impact. But additionally, the sanctions on oil has changed some of the dynamic. How is the war in Ukraine interacting with and changing electric vehicle rollout? So gas prices are going up, and I think that's only leading to more people searching on Google for electric vehicles and kind of saying, well, actually, save some money on this. So I only can see that it's going to be a positive whilst electric vehicle costs are going up and the average rate you might pay is going up. If you look into the weeds a little bit, as I kind of do on a daily basis, the EV tariffs haven't changed dramatically. So you can still get overnight if you're on the right tariff, these kind of like five, six P per kilowatt hour rates. But we're obviously going to see, and you alluded to it a second ago with the change in the grid is not just down to one component of EVs. It's also heat pumps. It's also air conditioning. It's also the build out of new building blocks elsewhere and the addition of kind of renewable energy and distributed resources. There's so much going on that I think there will be some, some more innovation really in these electricity tariffs as well over time. So we think about the war and the, the prices of oil and gas kind of increasing. We're seeing that the, the actual price for petrol is going up slightly quicker, particularly in the US, should I say, actually. If you look at the US, the, the price of petrol has gone up a lot quicker than the price of electricity, therefore making EVs look much more attractive. In Europe, they are slightly more attractive, but that dynamic hasn't changed so much. So also super topical at the moment are technology companies. And as we think about what's happening in the Silicon Valley and what's happening 
with many of those listed companies. Let's just talk about some of the industries that they are actually operating in. What's some of the coolest technology I guess you're thinking of? And I'm thinking almost like there's an app for that. Is there an app for that when it comes to electric vehicles that I should be aware of? So there's so many cool things that we get to go out and look at and go around. We went to San Francisco in February and we went out in the Waymo's. We were fortunate enough to go to their depot and see what was going on. And sometimes that really provides just that kind of eye opening to go, all right, am I looking at the numbers correctly when we do our forecasting? And one of the things they had there, if you just imagine really hundreds of Waymo's, I think in this depot, kind of the Jaguar I-Paces and the Chrysler Pacificas, and somewhere in the region of 20 fast chargers in one bank, which is quite a lot. What you soon realize from that is why would you plug in an autonomous vehicle? So that leads you to say, well, when these autonomous vehicles become a big portion of kilometers traveled and they take up more of the market, then we'll see wireless charging take up more as well. And what you don't want to do if you're an investor in charging is really go, actually, I'm going to put all my money into something. And then it's instead of lasting 10 years, it's only going to last five. So I think people will start to look at that in a bit more detail in the next five years, maybe. And we might therefore see wireless charging become a bigger part of the market. How does wireless charging work? So this is going to test my knowledge. And I think at the moment, there's like three or four main companies who are doing this. And some of them are touting different technology. Some of them seem to have technology that's quite good at low powers, similar to the kind of home charging. Um, and some of them are quite good at, at fast powers. And then some of them will say, well, actually, we've got the best technology because we can provide the technology to do both fast and slow from the same IP base that we've got. So I'm not going to suggest that I understand everything about how they send the electricity through the air, but that's one of the things they're certainly interested in. Incredible. Okay, that'll be really interesting. Leave it to Silicon Valley to continue to innovate in this space. So Electric Vehicle Outlook 2022, we look forward to having you back on the show next year and see what things actually stood out. But really interesting to hear about all of the stuff that we've looked into specifically regarding the charging network. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dana. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability of this recording is expressly disclaimed. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.